I was six years old in my house after church. I was a little girl in Sunday school. God saved me in Meadville, Pennsylvania, and I was a little boy. I was seven years old at Sunday school, and the teacher had uh, shared the gospel that day. I believed, and God saved me. I was five years old after Awana. I was in an elementary Sunday school class. I was 19 years old at Iowa State, a college ministry event, and God saved me. And that's exactly what we've been looking at for at least three weeks uh, in a very... Um, dedicated way, and that is how God saves people. It's been a fun three weeks. We hope that's always the posture of our heart, though, isn't it? That we're celebrating the gospel. We've been specifically looking at how God does that. We're going to continue that this week, so take your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 1, would you? 1 Peter chapter 1, take your journals, look to week number 5 in your journals, and to help us understand what's happening beginning in verse 10 of 1 Peter 1. I want to take a minute to review a few things with you, all right? We'll be picking up in verse 10 of chapter 1, but how did we get there? Uh, we laid a couple of weeks of overview early on uh, through verses 1 and 2, as well as looking at the key verse of 1 Peter. We saw there were a couple of big sections in 1 Peter. Uh, from chapter 1 through about 2.10, Really, Peter just dissects and discusses and rejoices in our secure position, which is that God has saved his people. That's our secure position. And he follows that up with a couple or three chapters then of our certain privilege, which ironically is to suffer for Christ's name. And so we looked at those two big sections as kind of uh, demarcating really how First Peter unfolds. And then to begin our journey through that first section, which discusses our secure position, Travis kicked us off in verse 3, and we looked at um, the majestic mountain of God's mercy. And if you recall, what Travis asked us to do was to kind of don uh, the VR headset. Do you remember that week? And we climbed up the mountain of God's mercy, and we looked, at, and we saw the height and the peak of this beautiful thing called God's saving grace and mercy based on his character and his mercy, not our merit. Well, today I don't want you to put on the VR headset, which enables you to see something in an expansive way. I want you to put on some surgical specs. Yeah, like the ones behind me on the screen. I had a cyst removed a few months ago on my thumb, and the doctor walked in, and uh, he looked at it, and then he deadened it, and then he put on these long goggles and he was going to see things in my thumb that I couldn't see and he peeled that skin back and he propped it open and he dug in there and he found the root of that cyst and I couldn't see it even with I was filming it of course you know grandkids they got to see this kind of stuff right but I, I'm filming it watching I couldn't see what he's seeing because he's got these specks on that look way deep in there he got an invasive helpful look at what was going on and today I want you to put on the surgical spec so that we can get an invasive view of salvation, the nature of it, the chronological, historical timeline of it. You see, Travis helped us see a, an expansive view, the heights of God's mercy. Today we're going to get an intensive view and the depths of God's mercy. It's laid out for us in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. Your Bibles are open there. Prepare to take some notes. Let me read the text for you. You follow along with me. Peter would say this, concerning this salvation, and notice that he does 
make sure we understand it's this salvation. Which salvation is the one he's been discussing for the first uh, several verses, verses 3 through 9. This salvation that's from God that causes us to have relentless rejoicing because it's an invincible salvation. The salvation that's based on his mercy, not our merit. Yes, this salvation about it, he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, speaking of the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. A very um, overwhelming uh, imposing set of verses that really discuss salvation. And Peter does tell us this, doesn't he? He lets us know right off the bat, see the three-word phrase concerning this salvation. So he's given us an invasive, very intensive look into God's saving work really over a period of time. So I want to just give you briefly, in a few moments, five observations about this salvation. But before I do, I want to make sure we clearly understand this salvation that we're looking at. I don't want to take anything for granted because Peter here says concerning this salvation. So what is salvation? Before we understand all that he says about it and with our surgical specs, this intensive invasive look, what is salvation? Let's take nothing for granted. The word literally means to rescue to deliver, and I'll do a Webster-ism on you, it's the act of saving. You ever notice that in the dictionary, you'll look up a word and they actually use the word to tell you what it means, which actually you shouldn't do, I've heard, but it happens all the time in the dictionary. So salvation is the act of saving. Thank you very much, right? But it means to deliver, to rescue. Uh, the big word for this doctrinally is called soteriology, it's the doctrine of salvation. It's a very biblical word. It's throughout the Bible. So we want to make sure that, that we use the words the Bible uses and explain them. And so the word salvation is a beautifully biblical word to rescue, to deliver. And it refers to God's deliverance, his rescuing, his saving of sinners. That's how it's used in the Bible predominantly. Now you say, well, well, who would that be? That's all of us. Does it matter your age or your name? Does it matter your economic status, your address, your location? The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned. And so as a result, we fall short of God's glory. So God's standard is perfection, holiness, and that's a right standard. Don't be upset with God. He's God. He's infinitely righteous, just, holy. He has no sin in him. He's not around sin. God is only light and pure and just and loving and holy. He's unchangeable. He's powerful. He's all-knowing. So this is God, and he's holy, and yet we've sinned against God. We've transgressed his law, his expectations. And so because of that, we are sinners. Now, remember, we have done that because we are that. 
We are sinners by nature and choice. And so because we are sinners and have transgressed God's law, we've not met up to his standard, we are now under the judgment of God. Now listen very carefully. Ultimately, God will judge all sin. And the, the, the best way to explain that is that there is a place that sinners will go who refuse to believe in God and accept his truth. It's called hell. That is the simplest way to describe the judgment of God against sin. However, what's so wonderfully gracious about God is that he has made available a rescue from his judgment against sin in the most plain of terms. He's made possible and available deliverance from hell, which is separation from God. See, this is why I find it so disturbing when folks, and I'm going to be very explicit here. Please don't laugh. I'm not trying to be funny here. When folks say, oh, go to hell. When folks say, God damn you. It's so disturbing because you see, while we know there is a judgment upon sin, there is a damnation for those who refuse to believe, God has gone to great lengths to do the opposite. He loves sinners. And he has sent Jesus Christ to save sinners. And so when, we're so, when people are so flippant with that kind of language, it's such a mischaracterization. Uh, characterization of really the heart of God. He's just, sin will be judged. But because he's the justifier of those who have sinned, he makes available and offers salvation to all who believe. Hear that word? Salvation from what? From his judgment, from separation from him, from hell. And maybe you're wondering, well, how does one receive this salvation? How do we experience deliverance, this rescue? It's through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So God sent Jesus to live among us. He was God, yet he was man. And so because he was both of these, two natures in one person, he qualified to die in our place as a man, and yet he satisfies God's wrath against sin because he was perfect and holy God. So God died in the place of man, satisfying God's wrath against sin. This was in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ lived up to and fulfilled all of God's expectations. He did what you couldn't do, but what you should have done. What I should have done, but couldn't do. Jesus did. And when he came to the cross as the Lamb of God and took our place, was our atoning sacrifice, was our substitutionary payment, he was crucified and he died for us and he was buried in the tomb. And then three days later, God proved that he was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice for us in our place by raising him from the dead. And now all who believe in Jesus' work on the cross and from the grave, God looks at them and says, I will deliver you, I will save you from, I will rescue you from my judgment, i.e. hell, because you have believed in Jesus Christ. This is why the cry of the New Testament is consistently this very simple refrain. Paul said it to the jailer in Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's that word. 
It's what Paul would say in Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter would preach at Pentecost. He would say, there's not salvation in anyone else except Jesus. It's the only name by which we must be saved. So that's salvation. It's a rescue from sin, death, and hell by God through Jesus. That's what Peter is going to help us understand. Amen, church? And so before we dive into these five quick observations, I want to ask you this question right out of the gate. I'm going to use the biblical word. Are you saved? Do you have the gift of God's salvation? Because, you know, Paul said in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. There is a punishment and a judgment for sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so if you right now are saying, yes, Todd, I'm born again, I'm saved, I have the gift of salvation, I bet your heart is just pounding, ready to get into these five observations. You're like, hey, could you quit this and get to the verses, please? I'm with you. I I love that. But it always helps us to remember that there are people who have yet to put their faith in Jesus. They're curious. They're seeking. They're wondering. They're always around us. They're in your life. They're in my life. They're in our church as far as attending and just kind of peering in. And we want to always be quick to say, if you've never trusted Christ, would you receive the free gift of God's salvation today? Just ask God to save you. This is the most important question you will ever answer in your entire life. This question, it's the... It's the a question of eternal destiny. And so if you've yet to say yes to Jesus and accepted him and received the gift of salvation, if you've yet to be saved by God, my prayer is that as we unpack these five things, your heart will just be drawn to trusting Jesus. Now you'll look to him and ask him this morning, at some point in this time while you're in your seat, God, would you save me through Jesus by your grace? So what do you say we look at these five things briefly? And I mean briefly because this is a packed set of verses. It's loaded, but I want to show you five things somewhat quickly about salvation from these verses. Notice, first of all, salvation was prophetically promised. You see this in verse 10. Do you notice the phrase, the prophets who prophesied? And then other words describing that, that they searched, they inquired. Do you see that language there? And so it tells us something that, that uh, God's plan of salvation has been predicted and promised. It was spoken about long ago. So this brings a lot of veracity, a, a lot of weight to the fact that, that it's real and genuine because it has not only been prophesied, it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This was hundreds of years before Christ was born and then hundreds of years before he died and was raised again. The prophets predicted and promised that exactly this would occur, that that Christ would come and be our Savior. Moses predicted this in Genesis. We have Micah predicting this. We have Joel, Amos. We have Jeremiah. We have Isaiah. There's Daniel. Uh, Multiple prophets all pointing to the same event, that a Savior, a Messiah would come. Let me bring one to your mind that I think especially relates to Peter's point here. It's Isaiah 53, in which hundreds of years before Christ was born and before he died, Isaiah would write this. 
This is verses five and, and six of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, speaking of the Messiah, Christ. Isaiah would write that all we like sheep, we've gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Do you see what Isaiah predicted and promised and prophesied? That one would come who would bear our sin, be the sin offering, be the sacrificial lamb, the the one who would purchase our salvation through the sacrifice of his life. That's what Isaiah prophesied. And it came true in Jesus Christ. That's just one of many. And Peter here is affirming, yes, salvation has long been promised. So it brings veracity and, and, and um, weight to what God is doing in saving sinners. Secondly, and then watch the wording here, it's paradoxically yet powerfully accomplished. I love the way that Peter connects two words that we often fail to connect He says the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And in the life of Christ, you don't have one without the other. Both are necessary in the work of salvation. There was a necessity for Jesus to be the suffering servant, as Isaiah points out. He was to be the Lamb of God. And of course, in God's scheme and economy, the Lamb was sacrificed as the atonement for sin. So there had to be a suffering element. And yet... In the suffering, he was exalted, he was resurrected, he ascended. I think glories here probably refers in a most specific fashion to the resurrection, but I think also to the ascension and all that came after that with Christ now reigning with full authority based on Matthew 28. And so here the word glories is all that came after, uh, including the resurrection. It's all of Christ's beautiful reign and authority and power and dominion and glory. And these two go together in the work of salvation. There is a suffering element. He suffered for us. He paid for our sins. He gave his life. And yet now he is the victorious king. And both are necessary. And Peter here shows us that's how salvation was accomplished. Through the sufferings of Christ. And yet now through his glory, he's able to, to give salvation to all who believe. He's the king. He can do that. Amen. Notice the third thing about salvation. It's, it was progressively revealed. I think this is a very interesting aspect of this text because it seems to be the uh, mentioned multiple times that something the prophets knew but weren't fully aware of, they were communicating that, and then they were told that what they were understanding and revealing wasn't really for them, it was for us. So there's this timeline in play. There's this progressive nature going on And so salvation is progressively revealed. In the New Testament, this is called the mystery of Christ. I would encourage you in your small group, maybe use Ephesians 3, 1 to 6 as a corollary passage here. Small group leaders, perhaps read that in your group and discuss this mystery of Christ because the mystery is something that at some point was, was hidden but began to be unpacked and unfolded till now we understand and see it clearly. And most specifically, here's the mystery of Christ. That, it's, that what God is doing in saving people isn't a Jewish thing, it's a Jesus thing. And you should be thankful of that because more than likely the vast majority of this crowd, you're non-Jewish, you're a Gentile. You are what the Bible would call outside of the promises. 
You were what the Bible called far off, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is now one people of God, Christian, Christian. Do you see it? We're followers of Jesus and all that's been made possible through God and his salvation. God is saving all who believe. It's not a matter of ethnicity. It's a matter of faith. And so he's showing this is a progressively revealed work of God. The, whole, the, the prophets were aware of it. They knew some parts of it. And so they shared what the Holy Spirit inspired them to share and to write. But then as Jesus came, more was known. Then he died and rose again. It becomes, becomes clear. Oh, so really you are in Christ through faith. It's not a matter of being Abraham's ethnic seed. It's by trusting in Jesus through faith. And so we love the fact that salvation is progressively revealed. It's this mystery that has now been made known. Fourthly, it was personally announced. <clears throat> there are at least two times in this text you see the pronoun you. You notice that? Verse 12, <clears throat> in the things that have now been announced to you. And then also the phrase, through those who preach the good news to you. In other words, this progressively revealed salvation that the prophets prophesied and that contained both suffering and glory, this has now been declared. The word announced is the word used to describe what, a, what an army or a general would do after a victory. And you don't announce information that requires someone to go and now purchase something or leverage something or bargain for something. That's not happening after a victory. You simply say, I won, I'm in charge. And when Christ defeated sin, hell, and death, and Satan on the cross and from the tomb, when he arose and ascended, he was the one in full charge. He was the king. He had all authority. And now he declares and he asks us to join him in this declaration that the gospel is, is the good news that Christ has come has won and saves all who believe. You don't need to bargain with God, bring your works to the table. You're not trying to merit something. Here's the news. Here's the announcement. It's not a list. Jesus Christ saves sinners. Amen. And so what we do is we call for everyone to respond to this news, to this announcement, to this declaration by believing in Jesus Christ. And when they do, watch this, God saves them. They receive salvation. It's personally announced. Aren't you thankful for the day you heard the good news that God saves sinners, that God delivers sinners from his judgment, that God rescues sinners from hell? Aren't you glad for that day when you personally heard the word of truth and then you took your stand on it? At that moment, here's what happened. God saved you he gave you salvation. Lastly, notice this. This salvation is angelically perplexing. I love the phrase that uh, Peter writes here to us. He says, this whole work of God, angels long to look into it. Now let that just kind of weigh on you for a moment because I'm gonna explain more about that phrase. The word long is the word for lust. It's the word epithumia. And in the most technical sense, lust is not a bad word. Now, we normally hear it in the negative sense because of what it connotes to us. 
But in a grammatical sense, lust is a neutral word. You can have strong desires in a good way for something. You can have strong desire in a bad way for something. Here, he's saying that the angels, they have a strong desire to look into what God does when he saves sinners. It astounds them. Now, the reason is because angels don't experience redemption. So, no angel has ever been saved. Angels, um, you know, Jesus didn't die for angels. Are you with me? So understand, what they're looking at is something outside of their realm of experience. When he uses the word look, he's describing a, a peering into with curiosity. The same words used to describe Peter and John when they were at the tomb. They raced there and they stooped down, and they looked into it, and they just, they were amazed you know, they were speechless. They just couldn't believe what they were seeing. The tomb is empty. The same word used here when angels long to look into it. But here's the difference in this word. When used in Luke and John, it describes the view of someone who's an insider. The disciples were insiders. They were given information. They didn't quite understand it. But when it happened, it began to click. So they're kind of on the inside. Oh, we get it. This use of the word is really used to describe the view of an outsider. And they're watching, but those who are being watched don't know they're really being seen. That's you and me. So sinners really are just kind of unaware that what angels are doing is they have this strong desire to peer into this realm of which they're an outsider. Like, what does it feel like and look like to be redeemed? Like They just can't hardly fathom. And so they have this desire to look into it. Isn't that amazing? We find another scripture elsewhere in the Bible that talks about how angels watch the church worship. I think this is a very similar concept because though angels are postured for worship, that's their position. They cry, holy, holy, holy. Um, we know that's true. They're watching now redeemed people take that same posture of worship. But our reason is redemption. God is worthy because the lamb has been slain. So though they know that, they have not experienced that. So they're peering in to you, to your life, to God's work in saving you. And they're strangely curious. They want to behold this. They're wondrously amazed at God's work of saving sinners. Now, as you think about these five things, I think we would admit that the real ambiance of the text, the tone of this text, is that, that Peter seems to be driving at this thing that says, hey, something is so amazing, something happening is so incredibly astounding that even the prophets weren't quite sure what was going on. The angels are... Uh, curious about it. Like there's something about salvation that Peter says from prophets to angels should just astound us. So this is why it's so bothersome when Christians today are bored with the gospel. I don't think Peter has any concept of a Christian who's like just twiddling their thumbs when it comes to God's saving grace. I don't think he can fathom When's this song going to be done? How much longer? We talk about salvation every week around here. 
Why does he have to always give the gospel? Doesn't he know everybody's probably already saved? I mean, can't we just get past these elementary things? I mean, we're kind of being humorous and facetious, but this is much the state of the American church. We've got, our knowledge has way surpassed our level of obedience. And we often kind of resort to like, well, I just want to move on. I remind you, you don't move past your salvation, you build upon it. Peter here has no, it is not in any of his thoughts that a Christian could endure persecution, handle hostility, and suffer well for the name of Christ without a solid understanding that what God did when he saved you by his mercy, which enables you to rejoice relentlessly, that that one act alone should deserve your complete amazement for the rest of your life. Amen. Forgive us, Lord, that too many of us move past it quickly, think it's something simple, so I just want to leave you with this simple truth that I draw from this text. Yes, dissecting it, looking at these five things. But as I read the text and get the tone of it, here's what I'm sensing. That there's nothing like God's salvation of human sinners to make the whole universe worship and wonder. Now I remind you, the world thinks you're crazy and strange for believing. They think you're odd for putting your faith in Jesus. But, but watch this, church. The Bible says that God's saving of sinners is the focal point of the universe. Are you hearing me? That God's saving of sinners is the focal point of the universe. Angels that you can't see long to look into it. Demons you can't see are fighting against people so they won't believe. And throughout eternity, what God will do is display all of his saved people as a trophy of his grace. He will brag on his own glory forever. So let me tell you something. This world is fleeting. It's a few short years of enduring their ridicule, their sarcasm. Don't worry about it. What they think is strange is actually the focal point of the entire universe. God saves sinners. Man, hallelujah, church. Amen. I pray you never get bored with the gospel. That you never take your salvation for granted. That you're never afraid to use the phrase, God saved me. So to help you have this posture on a regular basis, let me give you three, I'll use the word tips. I could even repeat myself on scene. Let me give you three postures. I'll do this quickly. Three action points, we'll call them. They're strongly supported in Scripture. They're not from this text. So I'm applying some things here, and I want you to hear me well. But these are strongly supported in Scripture. We can say without a doubt, these are our postures. These are demeanors that we should adopt so that we don't fall into the board with the gospel category. First of all, hands off. What do you mean, Todd? Never take credit for God's saving grace. 
Now, I run the risk here of mounting a soapbox. I know that. I've warned myself all week, don't mount it. So I won't, but I want to lean into you pretty heavily here just for a second and say this to you. Develop the wording of your testimony so that you have purged any kind of credit or self from it. Do not boast at all in anything you've done or brought to the table because it is actually filthy rags. This is why I love the phrase that our testimonies have been using. You notice everyone simply saying, God saved me. That's the clearest way to describe what happened. You weren't looking for God. And when you felt like you were seeking him, it was the Holy Spirit drawing you to God because no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him, Jesus said. How does the Spirit draw people? We lift up Christ and him crucified. Everything in salvation is about God. He's the author and finisher of our faith. What we did was see Jesus and the beauty of his gift offered and we responded in faith. So whatever you do, church, only boast in Jesus, hands off, no credit. Sometimes I hear folks talk about their experience when they were saved and it's like, well, I made the decision. I chose and because I, it it was a lot of eyes in there and I'm like, you were dead. And God, by his grace, breathed on you through the Holy Spirit and gave you life and you stood up only by God's power, responded to his grace and believed like, can we just delete the eyes and say, thank you, God, for saving me. And I long for our church to be so boastful of God's grace that that we're just not worried about how we're seen or perceived, right? Who, Who cares? Let's make much of God. So this is the posture you've got to take, a hands-off, no credit. It's all God. Jonah said this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Number two, eyes up. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he says, the author and finish of our faith. And so when your eyes are up, when there's a vertical perspective, your feet don't stray. But you make that perspective horizontal, you start worrying about what people think, their opinions, you'll you'll quickly detour. You'll begin to wander because your eyes are just darting everywhere. Eyes up. It's a vertical perspective, period. You see, one day we're going to answer to God. Not Facebook, not Instagram, not YouTube, not the government, Not your school, not your spouse, not your kids, not your sports team. I mean, the list could go on. You will not answer those. You will answer to God. So I want to encourage you, eyes up, vertical gaze, so your feet don't wander. And you continue to see God is the only one who has saved you, and you will now give your life to him. So hands off, eyes up mouth open. By the way, the third one is the result of the first two. If you try to speak about something, 
sing about something, share about something of which you're like, yeah, I, God's a really good thing in my life. Like, I love the Chiefs. I love, uh, you know, Chipotle, and I love God. Like, uh, that's not going to work, okay? You don't open your mouth for things that are, that are just, like, equal. Like, I've got seven of these things that mean a lot to me. No. But when, you're, when your hands are off and you realize that God has saved you completely by his grace and that you are fixing your eyes on him and the world doesn't matter, you know what? You'll find the courage, the opportunity, and the boldness to talk about Jesus a lot. Now, I, I think this is one of the things that it, it troubles me in my own life and I think in the life of our church and I think other churches within the context of our country. We are so afraid at times to speak up about Jesus. We have so many opportunities. We should see them and seize them more, but sometimes it seems like we're just afraid. And we use lines like, well, I, I'm just not really that type. Or, I don't know what to say. But, but I'll tell you what I've told you a hundred times. When you truly love something, you don't need trained in how to talk about it. You talk about what you truly love. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit that's true. Now, can we learn better ways to do that? Sure. But I don't think we have a witnessing problem. I think we have a worship problem, and it shows up in our inability to just speak up. So if you want to really make sure you maintain this kind of amazed spirit and posture at God's work of salvation, just talk about it more. And you talk about it more when your eyes are up and your hands are off. And the bigger God is to you, the, the grander, the higher he is, the quicker you'll be to talk about him. So can we just say these six words together? Here's three postures as we want to make sure we maintain the posture that Peter describes. We're just incredibly amazed from prophets to angels. Salvation's a, a, a staggering thing that has occurred. In response, we're going to do six, uh, three things, six words. Say them, ready? Hands off, eyes up, mouth open. And they go in that order. If we'll adopt this more and find ourselves really in the grip of what Peter describes, this gospel grip where God's work just, it, it flattens us every day. It's consistently staggering to think that God would do this. We'll join the ranks of people like John Newton. Who, when he was born again, could not believe that God would save him a slave trader. It took him multiple years, from about 1747 to somewhere in the 1750s, to really grasp the fact that God would save him. But he knew God had. And by about the mid-1770s, he penned the words to the most famous song probably in American history. Amazing Grace. You know it. And perhaps it best describes what we're trying to hit at today. In fact, you know it so well. Why don't you sing it with me? Amazing Grace. How? Hear that? Oh, yes, God saves sinners. 
that saved, catch this word, a wretch like me. I once was lost, but amen, I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.